0: Welcome to the Bloom Podcast, Human Stories of Resilience.
1: And I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording today and paying my respects to their elders, past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who might be listening. Hey, Steve. Hey, Susie. You are quite interested in consciousness. That might
0: be too understated.
1: Is that why you're a hypnotherapist?
0: No, it's the other way around, actually. I got into hypnotherapy and that's made me, I've always been interested in the mind, I think, has always seemed to me to be the most interesting subject of all. If we could influence Vladimir Putin's mind, we could do far more to influence what's going on in Ukraine than almost anything else we could do. Everything that happens, happens in a human brain, everything that's of interest to me. But really, it's since I've been into hypnotherapy that I've come to be thinking and reflecting an awful lot more about what is this mysterious thing called consciousness.
1: So what is this mysterious thing called consciousness?
0: Well, I managed to sneak in the word mysterious before... deliberately because it, it what, one of the mysteries is the more that we find out we know more about consciousness now because of all kinds of new technologies you can look at people thinking you can see what's happening in the brain you can hang on you can look at people thinking well you you can see the that's a good pickup actually susie good stuff i hope people are thinking when i'm
1: looking at them is is me looking at them, <laughs> make them making them think <laughs> how do we how do we look at people thinking are you talking about MRIs or something like that? That yeah, yeah. If
0: you put someone in an MRI, you can see what is what parts of the brain are being activated, and with other technology, you know, electroencephalograph, you can see what the brain waves are doing, how fast the brain is is activating electronically and uh, electrically, and so on. So, there, you know, there are some great new technologies or relatively new technologies for looking at what's going on, which gave us have given us a, an insight that we never previously had, but we're not getting any closer. And when you think about all of the different disciplines that have got a real stake in exploring it, not just psychologists and neuroscientists, but anthropologists and linguists and biologists and physicists, just about every academic discipline, certainly in the sciences or in the disciplines that claim to be sciences like psychology, they've, they really are fascinated by the subject and are fighting over it. Oh, and philosophers as well, of course. But we're not getting anywhere. Not in terms of if it's a question to be solved, we are no closer to the solution. Is it a question to be solved? Well, there are two schools on this. One school says, duh, don't be stupid. Everyone knows that there is consciousness and you know what consciousness is because you experience it. What further is to say? Is there to say about it? Of course, it's blindingly obvious that we have, as someone put it, how did they describe it? Something like the feeling of what is, which is to say, this subjective experience that we presume that everybody else has and that that we have. That's one school. The other one says, "Well, you haven't said very much. All you've said, done it really, is you've kind of gestured vaguely in the direction of some observations." about a subjective experience. Well, we know from most study of what goes on inside us that observations about subjective experience can be important, but they're unlikely to be the whole story. And what about subconsciousness and unconsciousness? Well, quite. I mean, that's that, I think, is the flaw in the whole well Dur school. You know, if you've had anaesthesia, we've talked about this on the podcast before, you know that you go out In a way which is really quite uncanny, you're suddenly absent, or even just drifting off to sleep. Actually, I haven't told anybody else this, and I really want to share it because, for me, it was a fascinating experience. We're going to sleep the other night, and I had a mental phenomenon that I've never experienced before, and it was like a scenario came into my head—not a very complicated one, but just enough that it was—it was more than just a, a, a flash. You know, it was like a set of circumstances. But as I say, not very complicated. And part of me knew that this had never happened, that it was almost like, and I wasn't quite sure whether what my brain was doing was rehearsing something or creating a scenario out of existing material. But I found it, it, it was really intriguing to be able to just glimpse something that's going on in the subconscious. When I'm with clients with hypnosis, I very often like to describe it. This is what it seems a bit like to me that you are the riverbank you're the riverbed and your thoughts are like the water that flow through you you don't for the most part you don't choose your own thoughts i don't think you can but just as you can choose to be to breathe and and do that consciously mostly you don't most of our thoughts seem to come up well they must come up from within you they're not coming up from anywhere outside you i don't think They're coming up from somewhere deep down outside of our awareness. And then it's almost as if there's a little stage inside you and they kind of compete to be the center of your awareness. They want you to notice them. They feel it almost feels like they're here for they've got a message and then they drift off. And I don't know where they go when they leave us. Where do we go when we fall asleep? does that resonate? Is that what what it feels like to you?
1: Yeah, we fall into dreams. I mean, we don't, we fall into many layers of, call it consciousness again. The more I say the word consciousness, the uh, stranger it's starting to sound to me. Have you ever been able to become conscious while you are dreaming?
0: This is um, what's sometimes referred to as lucid dreaming. But mm. Maybe fractionally, very, very rarely. I did start to put some effort in. There's, there, there are techniques for lucid dreaming. And the theory is that if you can remind yourself when you're awake, if you've got a little signal that you can give yourself, then if you if that becomes such a habit to you, when you fall asleep, you can attach to that habit. You can do that thing and you can notice that you are dreaming. And that then kind of unlocks the ability to control. I mean, I'd I, I love reading accounts of vivid dreaming because you can fly, fly where you want to, and have kinds of experiences that you know that you're volu- that you're voluntarily having. So I don't get anything like that. But certainly, it you know the intensity of the memory of a dream when you first wake up, you can be really taken with the emotion of it. And I've sometimes wondered. If someone's dreaming next to you and they're really not enjoying it, is it cruel to let them continue? Are you inflicting pain on them or allowing them to suffer pain? You know, if if, if you were awake, Susie, and, and you were clearly upset, I, I would do you know what I could to, to comfort you, and so would anyone else close to you. But if you're asleep, it's a different kind of a thing, isn't it? Depends how unpleasant a
1: dream it is, I suppose. I've had once or twice in my life, had the pretty horrible experience of having a nightmare so bad that I it woke me up, woke up screaming. And then there's that strange phase where you're not awake and not asleep. And last night, I kid you not, I dreamt that I got a COVID positive and couldn't go on my holiday.
2: So
1: <laughs> that's not particularly, not a very sophisticated dream. Don't have to dig too hard on that one.
0: I've sometimes observed that the deadliest sentence in the language, not just English, but any language in the world, is I had this really amazing dream last night. (laughs) And the only thing that rescues it is the thought that you hear, you have in your head as soon as you hear somebody say that, which was, was I in it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) To me, it's a, that sentence is a bit like someone saying, I just saw this amazing movie and then telling you the entire plot line. That's why I was very succinct with my uh, my COVID positive dream.
0: Commendably so.
1: One sentence is all all my attention can stand. And we don't
0: know why we dream. We don't know why we sleep. Not really. There are a number of competing theories. Most people would be a, would be aware of the Sigmund Freud psychoanalytical theory that it's the subconscious kind of bringing up you know messages of real significance. There's another view that. It's really just a kind of um, clearing out the junk type exercise that the brain does overnight. But, you know, it's it's quite obvious when you said that you would think, well, I'm dreaming that because I'm sort of looking forward to this experience and I'm hoping that nothing gets in the way. What could get in the way? Well, COVID could get in the way. That one's not hard. Should we go
1: and meet our guests?
0: Well, we might just want to say why we've been talking at this particular angle before we do. What You asked me about consciousness. What has that to do with our guest?
1: We're going to, well, I don't know because I haven't heard it yet, but I suspect we're going to get a story about consciousness
0: and layers of being awake. <laughs> this is getting a bit confusingly meta, Susie. Are you telling me we haven't done the interview that we recorded months ago? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> But it, it is a cracker and all everything that we've said up till now will start to make some sense in the context of our interview with Sarah. Hi Sarah. Welcome, Sarah.
2: Thank you, Suze. My name is Sarah Paflin. I'm 50 years old. I'm a communications specialist and a photographer. Landscape photos, macro photos of flowers and Things, Everything I love to photograph, actually. Travel, particularly, is a passion. Love to travel. Tell us about your moment that you knew. I was in hospital for a while and I had a moment where I knew I wasn't going to die, I was going to live. I'd had gone through IVF and there'd been a complication and I was rushed to ICU with what they call a CAPS onset, I was in a coma for pretty much the whole month. I'm not sure when they actually put me in a coma, but I think it was to the point where they said there's nothing else we can do for her. They called the family in to say goodbye. 12 years later I'm still here. I was in bed 53 in in ICU, which is the sickest patient bed because it's right at the nurses station. Once I came out of a coma, they moved me a couple of beds down. And I was next to this man called Sergio. Sergio was very sick as well. He had kidney failure, so he was all yellow. And they pulled the curtain shut. Shortly after that, one of the hallucinations I had were butterflies. His were yellow and mine were blue. And the height they were flying at fluctuated. Mine came down to my chest. His went up to the top. His came down, mine went up, and it wasn't until his didn't come back up again and mine flew off that I knew that I was going to be okay. And shortly after that, Sergio passed away. In his culture, the family needs to come in to say goodbye and there's a a ceremony that needs to take place. So they came in and bid him farewell and my butterflies had flown off. I knew I was going to be okay. I've got lupus, and one of the conditions is called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, which is basically when the blood cells turn themselves inside out and stick together. We went through the IVF process, and on egg collection, one of my tubes was nicked. That then caused what they call an adrenal infarction, so I lost the outer layer of my adrenals and therefore the ability to produce cortisol and that caused a lupus flare. One thing led to another and I had a catastrophic onset of the blood condition and was rushed into ICU. The survival rate of an an incident like that is generally 50% and the doctor that ended up looking after me had only seen one other patient with it and she hadn't made it to ICU so I feel very lucky to be here today. Some of the hallucinations I had in hospital were really quite vivid. Uh, one of the ones I had was burning the hospital down from the top down because I see you as in the on the bottom level. It was so vivid in my head. I was screaming out to everybody to save themselves because I thought, well, I'm the one that started the fire. I don't really deserve to live then when I came out of a coma I was still sure that I'd done it because I could still see the smoke hose hanging underneath the at the top of the the ceiling all the nurses and doctors were so happy to see my eyes open and me awake and I thought why are they so happy I've just burnt the hospital down there was a little sprinkler on the roof above my bed and they had a live newsfeed that was filming me asking why I lit the fire. So (laughs) when we got to the stage of the butterflies, it was a, a beautiful hallucination. And in my mind, what it represented versus the fire and the devastation that I thought it had caused when it actually hadn't. It was in October when it's jacaranda season. So all the purple flowers that were falling off looked to me like ash even though I wasn't awake. It's quite bizarre.
1: Now you have to tell the blowjob story.
2: Oh, no. That's very on PC for recording. (laughs) Before I went into a coma, I had all this fluid on my lungs. I couldn't breathe. I was on a ventilator and I just couldn't breathe. I called the young nurse. And I'd said to her, I said, look, I don't mean to be crude, but my husband lives down the road. I said, if you could just call him, he could come up. I could If I could give him a blowjob, that would make me gag for sure, thinking, well, if I could just get all this fluid off my lungs. Unfortunately for me, it wasn't the middle of the night like I thought it was. It was actually daytime and said husband was sitting at the end of, end of the bed. But what was perhaps even worse, was my mother was sitting right next to me. <laughs> I remember being discharged. I can remember it clear as a bill. Well. We we're driving out of RPA hospital and the jacaranda was still up and it was late in the afternoon and the light, the most beautiful light, was coming through. I was obviously discharged, just discharged in a wheelchair. And we went and sat on the balcony. It was still a very beautiful afternoon. On Fridays, a lot of the families come down and play on the grass underneath our apartment. It was swarming with kids. By the time Dukes got home, I was in floods of tears because I think that was another moment I knew that having kids was never for us. I remember saying to him, I totally understand. Family is important. I'm more than happy for you to go and find someone else if, if that's what you'd like to do. He was in tears and he said, I, I'm, I'm with you because I love you. It's not because I want to have kids or don't want to have kids. The fact that I was still alive was more of an indication of perhaps we just weren't meant to have kids. When I was admitted to hospital, I was 38 and my brother lost his battle with leukaemia, which is obviously another blood condition, when he was 38. My poor mother. <laughs> she went through. She went through the through the works. So yeah, I think that moment was recognition that children weren't going to be part of our life, and that was fine. We'll, our life will take a different path. I have a very good life, and I value every single minute of every single day of it because you never know what might happen tomorrow.
0: Thank you for sharing your amazing story, Sarah.
1: That was fantastic. Thank you so much, Sarah.
2: Thank you for asking me and having me.
0: Don't you dare say that was amazing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nah, boring. I mean, it happens to everyone, right?
0: Okay, in which case I
1: will. That was amazing. (laughs) It was amazing. It was funny because actually I've known Sarah on and off for, for many years. And oh that's what we're doing I now. Knew- it, we're
0: claiming the guests, are we? So yeah, that's all right. She, she comes from
1: she's one of mine. <laughs> and I didn't I didn't know that. You didn't know I knew she'd had some health challenges, but the to hear that level of detail and what she went through was um uh startling and remarkable.
0: <laughs> I'm avoiding yeah, the, the A word. It does Bear out my strong feeling that we're surrounded by these amazing stories. And I think even Sarah, if you remember when we did the interview, we were having to draw her out a little bit because she was kind of going, really, is this is this what you want? Yeah, absolutely. This is amazing. Often, I think those stories, when they do get told, they're kind of contaminated by the fact that you're telling them within the family. So people kind of already know what to think. Or you're telling them to people who know you, who know the backstory, but just to get it straight between the eyes, straight out like that, I think is really quite something.
1: That you know could be a theme of this entire podcast. I mean, going right back to the very early days, uh, the the episode we did about uh, color and being a being a person of color and racism in Australia for me, that is just, that's how I live my life. That's bread and butter. It's every day. And for you, well, having trained as a priest, for example, again, that's just part of your part of your story. But to other people, these are remarkable experiences
0: and remarkable things. She captures very well. It was a particularly vivid, hallucinatory experience of being in hospital. But I think many of us, Perhaps even most of us have had some experience of being in hospital, which still strikes me as being a very peculiar kind of a an experience. I mean, I don't want to keep saying the word experience, and I
1: don't want to say journey either. <laughs> it's just definitely not journey, but it is. It's a bit. It's it's like being removed out of your actual life and in some kind of parallel life that is the hospital with capitals, and you can step back into there at any point and and nothing has changed there.
0: Isn't it strange how we can so easily walk through the doors and then your whole relationship with your body, with your mind, with the world is suddenly inverted? You know, suddenly you're an object to be carted around on a, a bed with wheels or plugged into a beeping machine and visited by sad-faced people <laughs> with grapes who were feeling anxious. It's almost like a voyage into the underworld kind of, you know, in a mythical sense, do you know what I mean? That it's, you feel like you're going over to the other side almost, even if you're only there for something relatively minor. I mean, that little death experience of anaesthesia is, it's obviously not a real near-death experience, but it's probably the, the closest that most of us hope to get before it, the, we we get it for the real the real deal.
1: You called it a little death, anesthesia. Tell me more about that.
0: When we go to sleep, we sometimes think of being asleep as some, some sense of what it might be like to be dead. But we've got some sense of time passing when we're asleep. Whereas in anesthesia, you disappear completely. Where do you go? You don't have any, there's no dreaming. And then no sense of time when you wake up and someone could tell you that you had been in a coma for two weeks, you could actually believe them. There's no way of being able to verify anything about the experience.
1: It's like being not there as opposed to being asleep, which is being somewhere else. That's
0: good. That's that's well put.
1: Have you had a, a near-death experience?
0: No. No, I haven't, apart from anesthesia. You?
1: Not in that kind of the next 24 hours a critical way. No. I mean I suppose the the cancer I had would have is is emotionally a near-death experience in that it would have killed me. But I had the treatment, obviously, and uh, and have hopefully avoided that that fate. I suppose my other near death experience, and and all joking aside, would be having children. In that the so
0: what? Hang on, <laughs> How did, that was a big leap. A near death experience, having children.
1: Well, both physically and mentally or emotionally, I think it is actually a very dangerous thing to do. Ah,
0: only if you're. The one actually giving birth. I didn't find it that way at all.
1: <laughs> I said without joking, without being glib. Thank you.
0: Sorry. Well, I'll do the glib bit.
1: I'll just bare my soul here
0: <laughs> for you to for you to mock. No, no. Of course, I'm not mocking. But no, tell me more.
1: Well, maybe this is one of those things where it's something I take for granted, and everyone else is going to be going, "What the? <laughs> Why is she saying that?" It's a time, certainly physically, when your body is doing this whole thing and you don't actually know if it's possible. And there are there are doctors and society, everybody saying, well, of course, it's possible having kids. This is just normal. But the idea of growing another human being inside you and then getting them out safely for both of you is has always felt to me like a, an inherently risky undertaking. And then the emotional, the mental side, it's it's obviously well known that it can be very dangerous for, for women's mental health.
0: Yes. And it typically happens in that otherworldly experience of the hospital as well. When we've kind of pathologized ch- childbirth, haven't we? It is something where you are the patient because you're doing something which is, should be, you know, not pathologized.
1: Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure many, many women for whom this is, this is not the case. And they think of it as the happiest moments and the joy. I mean, obviously I do. It was a wonderful time in my life, but I wouldn't say it was a wonderful experience. It was a a bit of a fraught experience for
0: me, the whole thing. Did you know that one of the reasons why it's so dangerous is that the human brain, particularly the frontal cortex, which is the bit just behind your, your eyes and your forehead which is where the the executive function is mostly centered, the bit of you that knows that you are you and knows that, you know, that that part of the brain has trebled in the last million years. And that's really why it's as if the baby's head wants to be as big as it possibly can be to the point where it is physically almost kind of touch and go that the baby emerges and the mother survives.
1: Well, that's making me feel much better about the whole thing. Thank you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, evolution doesn't care.
1: But it's it's come along at the same time as we have access, most of us in, in this society have access to, uh, well, back in, back in hospitals again, aren't we? And uh, back at medical care. This is probably a podcast episode entirely of its own. Why I feel like having children is a, a life-changing and
0: potentially near-death experience. And yet, listening to Sarah, she had, in a sense, the opposite experience, the kind of realization that there was not going to be the possibility of any of this experience the good parts the good the bad parts any of it it was going to be a closed book to her
1: i think that's
0: a grief like no other for many people there's such a lot of pressure isn't there we might think that we are becoming more accepting and and maybe we are actually of course we are becoming more accepting of people's different experiences and and different you know what what they bring But even so, there's everywhere you look, there must be reminders if you are someone for whom that would have been so important and it's been denied to you for whatever reason. I don't know how people get through that without becoming just, and I suppose some people do, you can't blame them, become embittered and don't recover. And yet Sarah seemed to be able to have taken that grief somehow and been able to move on.
1: Well, I think we're agreed. She's amazing. (laughs)